bringing order to the intersection of public, private, and civic. This is Infrastructure Momentum Makers. Welcome to Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada, the only software solution purpose-built to securely run complex and high-value infrastructure procurement. All your infrastructure procurement processes in one place, all in order. And join me, Vratna Amin, as I speak with the movers and shakers at the intersection of the public, private, and civic sectors about the latest breakthroughs and developments in the world of infrastructure. Today, I am joined by the principal and founder of Tamika L. Butler Consulting, Tamika Butler. Tamika is a national expert and speaker on issues related to the built environment, justice, anti-racism, and change management. She joins me now to talk all about the need to bring more diversity, equity, and inclusion into our transportation and infrastructure systems, and so much more. Tamika, welcome to the show. Tamika, you are well-known and have a high profile as somebody who advocates for better infrastructure, for better outcomes for how we treat people. On this show, we also like to talk about people's careers and how they got there. You've done quite a few things, had different roles, but I think there's some common threads. And so it would be great if you just walk us through the ways you've touched infrastructure in your professional career and maybe what you think the common threads are. Definitely came to what I would maybe more broadly describe as planning work and a kind of non-direct route. I started off as a lawyer, and in my first job as a lawyer doing civil rights law, one of the communities I worked with was really focused on a new transit line and how that was impacting their work. I was an employment civil rights lawyer, but everyone wanted to talk about transit. I think as I've had different jobs and and done different things, the common thread is probably low-income folks, folks of color, queer folks, and, and I would say generally having that justice frame and and thinking about how our built environment builds in injustices and how to do work that addresses that. How would you describe justice or injustice in this context? I know that it's not always well-defined, but you probably have a more clear, specific definition. What would you say? Especially post-summer of 2020, there has been a lot more talk about equity generally and there, there's a researcher at the University of Minnesota, and one of his critiques about equity is that folks have heard me say before that, that equity is like the color blue where everyone's saying equity, but they might be saying blue, but they might be talking about navy or electric blue or, or teal or, or whatever it may be. In recent years, we've seen kind of DEI or EDNI, whatever, however people arrange the letters. Some folks have added that J to it. So some folks have started talking about what's our Jedi framework. That piece about justice being different than equity. I think for some people, it's it's hard to hear equity and still not default into equality. And I think that's particularly true when we're talking about built environment and infrastructure and the politics of it all, right? Like everyone wants their fair share and that usually means equal parts. And I think justice is this this realization that everyone's not going to get the same amount. And fair as a term is really subjective. <laughs> but 
my mom always used to say to me, if you want fair, the state fair is is in Lincoln, the capital of, of Nebraska, where we're from. When I think about justice, I think about that. Like, we're not aiming for things to just be fair. We're aiming for them to be just and for people to feel like some of the harm that has been done by infrastructure in the past is being acknowledged, atoned for, and that they're not just trying to be given a fair amount to get to where other people are, but they're actually uh, trying to get justice. Thanks for delving into that. It makes me then wonder, Tamika, over the last several years, and maybe specifically since 2020, as this has become a more mainstream conversation, if there are, what are you seeing in this field or industry that's really exciting and promising to you? Like, this is the right wave that's coming in. And then I assume, I'm curious if you agree that there's probably some waves coming in. You're like, oh, no, we're going to have to undo this too. Interpretations of equity or justice, because it's a huge industry that and people doing stuff all over the place, leading meetings, writing reports, writing laws. Salida Riddle, who was the previous general manager of LADOT and now works at LA Metro, I remember during the pandemic, she gave a talk where she said everyone was talking about the pandemic is this great opportunity to do different things, and one of them being equity. And she said, we can't allow this to be a permission slip for nonsense. And I think on the piece of what worries me is that now that everybody is talking about equity and now that everyone wants to fancy themselves a justice crusader, I think that we have a lot of well-intentioned people trying to check boxes without actually, one, doing the self-work and reflection on if they're the right people to do that work, if they've done their own work and and looked at their own privileges and power and, and bias. And I think in a desire to access funds or access cachet, folks are, are saying they're about something that they're not really, <laughs> the way my folks say it is like, are you about about it, right? And they're willing to talk about it, but they're not really willing to do that work. So that's what worries me. I think what makes me optimistic is I do think there is this realization that infrastructure and planning decisions generally have built in these inequities. And I think there is this realization that in our in our work, we're either perpetuating these injustices and exacerbating them, or we're trying to atone for them and we're trying to change them. And so I think there is that acknowledgement I think Mayor, now Secretary Pete, gives people a lot of excitement. I think the funding, I think the fact that the Biden administration seems to be trying to tie equity into more of its work. I think many of the hires at our federal transportation agency have been inspiring. But I I said this when... Secretary Pete was first appointed, and I continue to think, you know, as a as a queer person of color in this country, I am optimistic, but I am cautiously optimistic because for some of these things, we've heard before uh, that it will matter. And so for me, and I think for a lot of people, what was always going to be the true test is not just if in the year 2020, you decided that Juneteenth was sudden a holiday or you had statements prepared, but what is the long term of this work and how committed do you stay? And that's both to the outcomes. What does that look like in our built environment? But that's also in the process. And that's also in our internal organizations. Who are you hiring? Who are you, who are you able to keep and nurture and who's thriving? 
I think it's it's this outcome piece, but also this process piece. I think that's really helpful actually to see that people are touching the process by talking about outcomes or being involved in the process and showing up in different ways. I want to just check in on some of the roles that you play. I know them all, but and we don't want to walk through your LinkedIn page, but I know that you are a scholar. You're getting your PhD at UCLA and you are a consultant to agencies and I think other organizations and uh, sit on boards. But can you talk about the importance or for you why that's aligned to be in all of those parts of the process? I don't think you're sitting down and drawing street designs and doing the mechanics of planning, technical pieces of planning, but tell us tell us about the roles you play in the infrastructure process. I am doing all of those things. And I was a planner before going to planning school. And I think part of why I decided to get my PhD, I always told folks I, I had an overreaction. I was working on a project supervised by a, an older white guy, I think, who who fancied himself woke and, and frankly, com- comparatively to many folks I had been around was. I was working on a a project that had a lot of equity components to it. And some of the conclusions that we were drawing for our client, me and a colleague, we were told, you know, those were just opinions. Where were the academic citations? <laughs> and I said, okay, fine, I'll go to grad school. I'll create some of those academic citations. And I also think that as a person of color, I think what often happens in a lot of planning spaces is we get relegated to community engagement specialists or, or that's all people think we can do. I think there was also this piece of of wanting to say, no, 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 I, I took the same GIS class as you. Like, we can have this very technical conversation. With all that being said, I think one of the reasons I like planning work and built environment work is because I don't think you need those those degrees, right? I, I always tell folks, if, if you want to know about the speed of traffic on a street, talk to the homies who hang out on the stoop every day. I live in a neighborhood with a lot of older black folks and we have a neighbor who keeps an eye on everything for us, right? She could tell you everything you need to know about that street and who's supposed to be on that street and how fast people are going and where it would be helpful to have a speed bump or a stop sign or whatever. Yes, I think getting a PhD, having a background, working at a private consulting firm as a transportation planner, the planning director of of California, I think you know, being appointed by by the governor of California to the California Transportation Commission, um, being on different boards. I think all of those things are, are really important and matter often, frankly, to white folks in power, folks who have traditional positions. I think the identities that are more important to me and, and I think personally influence my work more being a mom, right? Like being black, um, being queer, being gender non-conforming and kind of moving through the world as a black woman who many people perceive as a black man. So I think those are the things uh, that really inform my work and, and tie all of the things on my resume together. I have a lot of different professional experiences and I think it makes me well-rounded and able to tackle infrastructure problems in innovative and creative ways. But I think the real things that, that help me do that are my lived experiences. Thank you for doing all this work to make a credential yourself, to get power for yourself and others in these spaces. I think it's a real act of service, frankly. I want to talk a little bit about Los Angeles, where you spent a lot of your time and played a lot of these roles. And Los Angeles is known 
for being about to purchase a lot of infrastructure and planning a lot of infrastructure with a big price tag. I just wonder in your experience in Los Angeles, what excites you there as an American city? Los Angeles is wild. <laughs> and I think it, it is exciting. You know, when I was applying to, to PhD programs, there was a point where I thought I would end up in Boston, a point where I thought I'd end up in Berkeley. But ultimately, having a family, all those decisions aren't your own. I was excited about L.A. I think L.A. is a place where the the diversity of the city makes it what, what UCLA professors always say is, is L.A. is this amazing laboratory, right? We have the Olympics coming. We have the passage of, of Measure M a few years ago, the sales tax. Our advocacy community of folks who care about infrastructure is strong. And I think, you know, in a place like L.A. specifically, but California generally, you have this huge economy. You have this economy that is is large and larger than some countries. I Not being from L.A., being a Midwesterner, not being a Californian, I always find the exceptionalism of as California goes, so goes the rest of the country. But I do think for a lot of the things I'm passionate about, if you can get a car-centered city like L.A., to think about climate differently, to think about sustainability differently and infrastructure and race and the role of police officers in our work, right? We're in a state. I really care about Black folks. My my work is focused on on getting Black folks free and we're in a state that is thinking about reparations on a totally different level. I'm, I'm in a city that's doing work taking police out of traffic enforcement, right? I do think LA is a hard city for many of the issues I care about, but I think that's what makes it fun. I think that's what makes it challenging. And I think that's what brings the, the advocates and the academics and the practitioners together to make change. Yeah, it's like a big place actually trying to move in a direction. I know Manuel Pastor has written a few books that talked a lot, USC professors talked a lot about California being a harbinger of the future for the rest of the United States. And then He's written that and it's a compelling argument. And on the other hand, from the outside, California can look like it's crumbling. It's a disaster. But I kind of agree with the notion that this is the, still the future of other places when they actually try and not just sweep things under the rug and you put them out there. The differences between communities, you put climate impacts out there, like you're going to go through a really awful ground zone of reality and redistributing resources. I wonder if you agree with that, but then also like there's so much wealth in California. How do we have those conversations about wealth, whether it's reparations or infrastructure? Like you have to give something up in this scenario where we all participate and there's justice. I do think there's something really interesting about L.A. You think, like you said, Manuel Pastor has written some really great stuff about L.A. Ed Soha wrote that book, Seeking Spatial Justice, where he talked a little bit about kind of like, is there an L.A. school or California school and how the Department of Urban Planning here at UCLA really worked a lot with community groups, really looked a lot at labor justice and how that ties to some planning stuff. I think there is a lot out there about what makes L.A. great. And I think as a grad student, I'm reading a ton of those books, anything Mike Davis has written, right? But 
I think that this piece you say about wealth, like, yeah, LA has a lot of wealth, but we also have huge disparities. I think some of our disparities between the haves and the have-nots as a country, this is a problem, but I think that's really highlighted in LA. And I was working on a project for the EPA with two colleagues, and we were talking about Black communities, border communities, Latino communities, and then Indigenous communities. Something one of my colleagues, Angela, she's at an organization where she talks about the way we need to think about reparative strategies, right? We can't just think here in LA, a great example is there was Bruce's Beach taken away from a Black family and given back to them. But before that Black family had ownership of that beach, who were the Indigenous folks? And so how do we think about our reparative strategies, but also how how are we always saying, how do we relinquish ill-gotten gain? So to your point about what do we give up, right? Angela always talks about what is that ill-gotten gain and what might we have to relinquish. Sacred Places Institute for Indigenous People is where Angela is at. And I love all of her work and the way she's thinking about this. And I think that's what's really hard for people in this equity work or justice work for me, right? It's not a matter of what are we going to get. Some people are going to have to give some things up. And one of those things at the top of that list um, should be power, right? Because I think in Angela's terminology, often power is something that is ill-gotten gain. How did you get that power? What did you still, whose people did you destroy or colonize or, or whatever it may be? I think it's really important to think about, again, what you said, like, what also are we giving up? And knowing that that's going to have to happen. I'm really curious about that framework. We'll have to look into it. But it seems to me both the right thing to do, the only way we're going to survive. There's just not enough of everything to go around. And as we know, and a lot of research is showing more empirically, a small group of people have been and continue to consume a lot of our precious resources and create a lot of the pollution. And I'm sure I'm somewhere in that continuum. You are too. Um, but then it's getting in right relationship also. I will say, I also don't want people to get into the space of like, there's not enough to go around, right? It's, there's actually plenty to go around. It's just a few people have it. So, so few people have what should go around. And I think that that's often how those in power are successful. They convince us of this scarcity mindset, they convince us that there isn't enough to go around. And the reality is there's plenty to go around. Is someone who thinks about myself as an abolitionist, and I think for a lot of us, we're still trying to figure out what does that look like in the infrastructure space, but I can't think of myself in that way with the mindset that there isn't enough, right? I just want to push those people who have too much to redistribute. I want to bring this conversation, which could go in a lot of directions, back to infrastructure and something I've been wanting to talk to somebody about, which is the redistribution of longer distance travel. We have a really rich conversation in cities, still needs to materialize, but of sharing things more equally, of redistribution, for example, street space or safety or who gets infrastructure improvements or trees in their community who has power. It's a less, far less developed conversation. We talk about who gets to fly who's traveling longer distances, and that's becoming more and more essential. And that's very expensive infrastructure as well that our country invests a lot in. And when you look at how air safety is as an investment in our country and the TSA and all of that, just want to throw that out there to me. Go like, what comes up for you when you think about repairing, redistribution, 
justice when we talk about kind of non-urban transportation, and especially these big systems, supposedly important to our economy? I think that's the big question, right? In some ways, I think that's part of why I'm doing my research. I think that is a great question. But what, what does it look like? What does reparative planning look like? And I think it goes back to that book I was talking about with Ed Soha, who talks about spatial justice. I think Dr. Destiny Thomas, I think she's now Destiny de Guzman, just got married. Thrivance Group, her organization, has something on their website about a litmus test for reparative planning, and they frame it in this like spatial reparations. So I think we have to start thinking about the way like our built environment and our infrastructure, yes, they are part of the inequality, but they also cause inequality. And so as we're thinking about reparations, what does that look like? I feel like I sound like an academic now because I'm only talking about books, but there's another professor at Georgetown who got his PhD in philosophy here at UCLA. And he wrote a book, Reconsidering Reparations. He uses climate and environmental justice to talk about reparations. And something he really talks about, it's not as helpful to think about fault, like who who are the bad actors, who are the good actors, right? Like many of us have ancestors who contributed to the building of these disparities, but instead we have to think about who's gotten the benefits, who's been able to accumulate the benefits over time. And then when you're thinking about reparations, you have to think about how do you reimagine that accumulation of benefits. And so when I think about planning and reparations, I really think about like who's benefiting from our infrastructure, who's benefiting from our built environment, who's accumulated those benefits, right? And then how do we start thinking about how to serve those who have who have been harmed by it for longer. That makes a lot of sense. As you know, I've been spending more time in Hawaii recently, and there's a really rich set of ideas and important ways of living from the folks who've lived here for hundreds, if not thousands of years, pretty much untouched. And, you know, nothing's perfect. You don't want to copy and paste. Um, it was kind of a harsh society as well. But there's some really great language that we should I think it, we can make progress when we relanguage things a little bit. And the word for land here is Aina. And it's not, and the word land itself is like a word that means property. Somebody owns it. And Aina is actually this place that feeds us. It's our older sibling. It's it's something that we are in a system with. And so I also just want to elevate how we are all searching, I think, outside of the existing models and language to see what direction we're going in. So I think the books you're referencing are really helpful to everybody, um, some of our listeners. One of the things I've done a lot of since I've been in school is also trying to take more classes on Indigenous studies and think about Indigenous studies. And I think it's this idea that too often we think we don't have the solutions to the problem when in reality they have the solutions, or at least there are people who have solutions and we've just ignored them. I feel like maybe last week, there were all these articles about how in Brazil, when indigenous communities got title to their territories, they were able to stop deforestation and were able to see an increase in the tree cover coming back, right? Sometimes I feel like we get into these places where we're like, well, what's the new innovative thing or hot phrase when in reality it's like, no, we have solutions. We just need to go back to what we were doing. 
Exactly. I'm glad that's starting to get more attention. Tamika, to start to close, I'm going to ask you two questions we've been asking all of our guests. The first one is, is about infrastructure. And as we referenced in Los Angeles, you have infrastructure projects that are going on for a really long time. And it can be a lot of chaos with a lot of players. How do you find order in that chaos? How do I find order in chaos? I mean, that probably goes back to being a mom. <laughs> I feel like moms, and I think particularly women of color, it's not that you're able to find order in the chaos. It's that you're able to keep going despite the chaos, that you don't let the chaos confuse you or stop you or, or be a distraction, that you're aware of the chaos, that you are compassionate about the chaos, that you are thoughtful about the chaos and how it might need to make you more flexible or change your friend. Thank you for that. And then finally, can you tell us about an infrastructure project or piece of infrastructure somewhere in the world that's on your bucket list to go experience? I feel like there's been this talk about this bike highway across Canada. And my wife is Canadian and we have a lot of family in Canada. And when we got engaged, we kind of took a cross-country trip in Canada. And the Canadian Rockies are beautiful and we've always wanted to take the train across the Canadian Rockies, but I would love for this bike trail to be built and to be able to experience that and experience it as a family. I think we would all enjoy it. What a lovely image. Tamika, I really want to thank you for your time and for your thoughts and sharing your experiences with us. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure as always. I want to give a big thank you to Tamika Butler for being with us today. It's really amazing to see the work she's doing to lead change in our built environment and imagine how we can all promote more justice in our transportation infrastructure. If you're enjoying the show, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find us. And until next time, I'm Ratna Amin, and this has been Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada. Ansarada.